are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 25 and following. There went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, setteth not down first and counteth the cost, for he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king? Setteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage, and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Heavenly Heavenly Father, in these next few minutes together, I pray the Holy Spirit will have complete control of this preacher and of every individual in this congregation. We pray tonight there will be an unusual awareness of thy presence and power. I don't know of anything I'd rather not do than to attempt to preach and know that the presence of God is not with me in a real conscious way. I ask for your power and blessings tonight. The folks have spent a lot of money and a lot of prayers have gone up, and I want to be a blessing. Without you, I'm nothing. Apart from you, I can do nothing. And so we ask tonight that you'll speak to hearts across this room and challenge Christians anew to live the kind of life that's required of them if they're to serve thee. Speak to hearts in this room in Jesus' name, and I'll thank you. Amen. I want to speak tonight on this subject. Building and battling. I just heard a moment ago that uh, Dr. Wallace spoke last night on building. But I'd like to speak tonight on building and battling. You notice in the passage that I read, there are two parables. There's a parable of a man sitting down to build a tower. And there's a parable of a king going forth to meet another king in combat. The parable of the man sitting down to build the tower has to do with building. And the parable of the man, or king, going forth to meet another king in combat has to do with battling. When I first read these two parables, I was just a little boy, maybe ten years old. And I remember thinking when I read these parables, Curtis, you'd better not get saved until you know what it costs to be a Christian. And I think I would have been saved sooner than I was, except that I thought that maybe I couldn't live the Christian life. Maybe it's too much. And I waited. There is a cost involved in salvation. That cost has already been paid. Jesus paid that 2,000 years ago. Oh, why was he there as the bearer of sin? If on Jesus my guilt was not laid, and why did he shed his life-giving blood? If he's dying, my debt is not paid. But the songwriter said Jesus paid it all. And the Bible said in Hebrews 2, 9 that he tasted death for every man. In John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. 
The cost in salvation has already been paid. And salvation was a free gift of me. to me. I only received it by faith in the Lord Jesus. I think there are people today who are waiting about receiving Jesus Christ as Savior for fear that they cannot live it. And the truth of the matter is that no unsaved man can live the Christian life. Somebody said you can't play in the symphony without an instrument, and that's true. And the most foolish thing a man ever tried to do is live the Christian life without the Christ. I know Thomas Kempis wrote a book entitled The Imitation of Christ. But I'm not too sure that the Christ, uh, that the Christian life is an imitation of Christ's life. I think the Christian life is really Christ's life lived out again through you. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, and yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Christian life is Jesus living his life out through you. As you yield to him. No, he's not saying in these two parables, count the cost of salvation. He counted that 2,000 years ago and he paid it in full when he died at Calvary. A few years later, I was reading the Bible again and I noticed these two parables. And I said to myself, he's not saying count the cost of salvation. He's saying count the cost of service. It costs something to serve the Lord. And for several years, I referred to these two parables when I would talk about dedication, saying you ought to count the cost of service before you surrender to full-time Christian service. I counsel people that way. Then one day I was reading a sermon by Dr. John R. Rice entitled, Serve God Regardless of the Consequence, and it sort of shot a hole through my sermon. Because you're not supposed to count the cost before you serve, you're supposed to serve Him no matter what it costs you. Somebody wrote David Livingston, the great missionary letter once, and said to him, Mr. Livingston, is there an easy way to get to where you are? I'd like to join you. David Livingston wrote back and said, we do not wish a man to join us who's looking for an easy way. We'd like a man to join us who will make his own way if he has to. And that's the kind of men God's looking for. That's the kind of women God's looking for. Not people who count the cost of service and then conclude that if the cost is too high, then I'll not serve him. He's not saying in these parables, count the cost of salvation. Nor do I believe he's saying, count the cost of service. But I think in these two parables, our Lord is declaring his twofold purpose in the world, that of building and battling. He's saying the same thing here. He said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when he said to Peter, upon this rock, I'll build my church, that's building, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, that's battling. Jesus is building his church, and his church is being built as people are being saved. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, the Bible said he gave some apostles and some evangelists and some prophets and some pastors and teachers. And verse 12 says, for the perfection of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or building of the body of Christ. I need not tell you Bible students that the body of Christ is the church of Christ. And the church is being built as people are being saved. When a person is born again, he's baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body. First Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Greeks, bond or free, and have been made all to drink of one Spirit. I lead a man to Jesus Christ, and the moment he trusts Christ as Savior, at that moment the Holy Spirit baptizes that individual into the body of Christ, and the body gains another member. Or the church gains another member. I lead another man to Christ, and 
when he trusts Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit baptizes him into the body, and the body gains another member. The same thing happens when you lead people to Christ. And someday the last person who is to be saved during the church age will be saved. The church will be complete, and Jesus Christ will come back for it. He's building his church, and his church is being built as people are being saved. Building the church involves soul winning. It's the pastor's job to perfect or to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, and every person who's saved is a saint. Every born-again believer ought to be actively engaged in soul winning. Everywhere you go, you ought to be telling people about Christ. You ought to be winning souls on the street corners, at the shopping centers, in the grocery stores. Everywhere you go, you ought to be winning people to Christ. This past week, I had the happy privilege of vacationing with Dr. John R. Rice and Mrs. Rice and his secretary, Miss Viola Walden, and the Russell Anderson family. We had the service on board the ship last Sunday morning. Last Sunday was a week ago. And uh, at least 25 or 30 people raised their hand that received Christ as Savior. If they were sincere, and I have no reason to doubt that they were not, then they were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. The body gained more members, and the body of Christ is being built. Jesus says, I've got a twofold purpose in the world. I'm building and I'm battling. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Does not put the church on the defense, but puts the church on the offense and hell on the defense. An attacking city never carries its gates with it. When a city went out to attack another city, they didn't pull up the city walls and carry the walls and gates. They left that behind. I believe the idea in Matthew 16, 18 is that the church attacks hell. And hell itself cannot prevail against the onslaughts of the church. Now, I believe the church is impregnable against attack. But it's not impregnable against attack because of its gates. It's impregnable against attack because of its foundation. It's built upon a rock. The Lord Jesus and and hell cannot overthrow the church. But so long we've been on the defense when we ought to have been on the offense. We sort of dig our little spiritual foxholes and take our spiritual pea shooters and shoot at the devil if he happens to come our way. When we ought to be marching like a mighty army out and attacking Satan himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, the Bible says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds. The idea is that the church marches out, and the church pulls down the very strongholds of the devil himself. While when Billy Sunday went to town, saloons closed up. The liquor crowd tried to bribe him not to come to town. Things happened in his town. I think when a Bible-believing, soul-winning church is in town, and the pastor's on fire for God, something ought to be happening in that town. The devil ought to know we're there. We ought to be doing some building, but we also ought to be doing some battling. One thing that has caused me concern is that churches get a label. They become known as a missionary church, or a soul-winning church, or a deeper life church, or a Bible-teaching church, when it ought to be a New Testament church. We have a winning church in seven years now. There hasn't been a Sunday past when people have not walked our aisles to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Nor has there been a Sunday past in seven years we haven't baptized converts. But I not only want a church that's building, I want a church that's battling and standing for the issues when we ought to be standing. I want a church that'll stand against Satan. And I want a church that'll march like a mighty army and pull down the very strongholds of Satan. I want to preach against sin in our city. They had a vote last year on liquor referendum in DeKalb County, 
And I preached in my pulpit on Sunday preceding the vote that we ought to vote no. And I told why. I think a church ought to do some battling. That same idea is brought out back in the Old Testament. When Nehemiah was building the walls, he instructed the builders to have a trial in one hand and a sword in the other hand. The trial was for building the walls, and the sword was for fighting the enemy. He wanted them to build and battle. The same idea is brought out in the little book of Jude, the vestibule of the book of Revelation. The idea of buildings brought out in verse 23, where, the, where Jude said, And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted with the flesh. Saving men, pulling them out of the fire, that's soul winning. That's building the church. But in verse 3, he says, you not only ought to be building, but he says you ought to be battling. He said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, constraint was laid upon me of the Holy Spirit, that I should write unto you and exhort you, that you should earnestly contend for the faith, the sum of Christian belief, that's battling. You ought not to compromise with modernism. You ought, to, you ought not to hold hands with a fellow who denies a virgin birth and blood atonement and inspiration of the Scriptures. You ought, to take a, you ought to take a stand for the fundamentals of the faith. That's battling. Jude said, win people to Christ. But he also said, contend for the faith. Build and battle. I long to see revival like I read about in books like the Second Evangelical Awakening and some of those books where things happened in cities that was obvious to the men in town that things were happening. I've seen a little touch, but only a little scratch on the surface. Not anything like I'd like to see. I'm told the revivals in Wales, that they had a, such a great revival that when the revival was over, they had to re-educate the mules. The men had cursed the mules so much, and when they got converted, they quit cursing. The next day, the mule didn't know where to get up for jiha. They had to re-educate the mules. I'd like to see a revival like that. Building and battling. Jesus declares his twofold purpose. I'm building my church, but I'm also battling. And the idea is not me counting the cost, but the idea is that Jesus Christ himself is counting the cost. And he knows what he needs in this business of building and battling. And there are three things I'll share with you very briefly. First of all, in verse 26, he said, I need someone who loves me supremely. He said, if any man come after me and hate not his father and mother... And brothers and sisters and so on, he cannot be my disciple. When I first read that verse as a young Christian, I wept. And I looked up to heaven and said something like this, Dear Jesus, I'd like to be your disciple. More than anything under heaven, I'd like to be your disciple, but I could never qualify because I could never hate my mother. And I could never hate my daddy. And I could certainly never hate my brother Bobby and Jimmy, my sisters. And I would cry. Because I wanted to love my mother like I loved her and still be his disciple. And one day I was reading again and doing some word studies. And I come to realize that he was not contradicting himself here. He was not saying hate mother and father here. And then in Ephesians 6, say honor them. But he's using comparative language here. He's saying this, you ought to love me so much that it makes your love for your father and your mother and your brothers and your sisters and your wife and your children and your own life look like hate when compared with the love you have for me. Did you ever hear the expression, he passed us like we were standing still? You didn't mean you were standing still. You meant he was going so fast it made it look like you were standing still. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I want you to love me so much that it'll make all the loves look like hate when placed beside the love you have for me. Now, don't raise your hand, but I want to ask you the question. 
How many people in this room tonight actually, sincerely, truthfully, love Jesus Christ that much? You think about the love you have for your children. I have a little girl, four years old, KK. We didn't take her on vacation with us. My wife thought she'd have a better vacation if she left her at home with babysitters. But boy, were we glad to get home. And in the middle of the morning, we went to get her. And from one to the other, I have four children, two teenage daughters, a ten-year-old son, and of course a wife. And from one to the other, we had to hug and kiss her. Oh, we were so glad to see her. And I would squeeze her. And I'd say, Jay, I love you so much, I couldn't bite your ears off. You know, you never did anything like that, did you? Then our mother would get her up and squeeze and say, your daddy doesn't love you much as I do. Nobody loves you like your mother does. And I seem to hear God say, that's wonderful, I like that. But you ought to love me so much, it'll make that love look like hate. You know the whole problem in America? You know the whole problem on the mission field? You know why you can't get missionaries to go? You know why you can't raise money to support missionaries? The whole problem is, we just don't love God. Jesus knew that. That's why he said the first and great commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. And the second one is like unto it, love thy neighbors thyself. The whole problem's a love problem. You see, God uses the thermometer of obedience to test the temperature of love. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Someone asked Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, Mr. Taylor, don't you think the one requirement for missionaries is if they love souls? And Hudson Taylor thought a moment and then replied, no. The one requirement for missionaries is if they love God. If they love God, they will love souls. And he's absolutely true about that. The greatest sin you could possibly commit is not murder. The greatest sin you could commit is not adultery. The greatest sin is not robbing the bank. The greatest sin you could commit would be to break the greatest commandment. And the greatest commandment is love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. Say, what was it made Peter backslide? John chapter 21, he said, I'm going a fishing. And one Greek professor says that the word I go a fishing literally means he was making a public announcement that he was leaving the ministry for good. He never intended to preach again. And here he went, I don't ever intend to preach again. I'm through. I'm not treated right. I'm discouraged. I quit. And six others went with him. And then Jesus appeared on the seashore. Someone said, it's the Lord. And Simon girded his fishers coat on and swam to the shore. And Jesus didn't say, Simon, why did you quit the ministry? He didn't say, Simon, why did you backslide and lead six other preachers astray with you? He said, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me. You see, Jesus got to the heart of the problem. Don't you love me? Oh, Lord, he said, you know I love you. And three times he asked the same thing. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He knew if he loved him like you ought to love him, he wouldn't have, been, he wouldn't have quit preaching. He knew if he loved him like you ought to love him, he wouldn't have backslid. No, you know what? If you love God like you ought to love him, you preachers, you'll be preaching when they throw rotten tomatoes at you. You preachers love God like you ought to love him, you'll be preaching when they cut your salary off. You preachers who love God like you ought to love him, you'll be preaching when everybody in town turns against you. And when the members get the blues and run up Miff Tree and hold back the greenbacks, you'll keep on preaching if you love God like you ought to love him. Nothing can stop you if you love him. What do you think kept Paul moving on, the big offerings he got? I don't think so. Don't read where he got many. Boy, I had a great revival. The offerings were good. I hope they invite me back over to that church again. No, I don't have time to go into it, but you read in the book of Corinthians how much Paul suffered. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. I studied that in detail. I didn't believe it. In watchings often, 
Which meant that at night he sat up and played the part of a night watchman and actually watched for his wife. In fastings often were not fastings of his own choice, but forced fastings had nothing to eat. And he was beaten with rods, which was an inflexible rod. When they hit him, it wouldn't give. You know he must have had back trouble. And the little four foot six inch giant, so the early historians tell us, beaten and battered from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. So that on one occasion he could open his coat and say, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Scarred. Scarred from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. And I'm sure somebody must have said to him along the way, Paul, you've been faithful now. You need a vacation. You need some rest. You're going to have a nervous breakdown getting in jail every night. Getting beat like that is not good for your health. You better take some time off. You need a furlough. What kept him going? I'll tell you what it was. Second Corinthians 5.14. Paul said the love of... Christ constrains me. The Amplified Version says the love of Christ compels me. It urges me. It drives me on. I can't quit, he said. I can't stop preaching. I love God. I can't stop writing. I love God. I can't stop winning souls. I love Christ. The love of Christ drives me on. Did you ever hear the expression, I wouldn't do that for love nor money? People use that expression because love and money are the two strongest motives. If you can't motivate a man by love, you'd motivate him b- b- with money. And the strongest of the two motives is love. Men will do things for love they won't do for money. I have a man in my church who waits on an invalid wife. You couldn't hire that man to wait on a woman like he waits on her. But he does it because he loves her. And when you love Jesus Christ like you ought to love him, and you go in a missions conference like this and try to raise money, you won't ask, how little can I give? But you'll ask, how much can I give? In a missions conference like this, and God speaks to your heart, you won't count the cost about surrendering your life to be a missionary. When the invitation's given, you'll go if you love God. The whole problem is a love problem. That was a problem with the church at Ephesus that he wrote to. And he said, I have somewhat against thee because I hast left thy first love. That's the whole problem. Charles Spurgeon used to say, I want to love Jesus Christ so much that when I look up to heaven and say, dear Jesus, I love you. That he'll look down and say, yes, Charles, I know it. A lady came to my office three or four months ago. She was dressed in a way that indicated wealth. Diamond rings on her hands and diamond watch. Clothes that were very expensive. She came in a Cadillac automobile. If I called her name, people in Atlanta would know who she was. Her husband owns one of the most famous eating places in Atlanta, Georgia. She came in and introduced herself, and her eyes were black. And she said, excuse the way I look, but she had, said, I haven't slept in two days. And she said, I've just cried until my eyes are black. And she told me who she was, and I said, you're not the wife of... And she said, yes, I am. And she said, I don't know what to do. She said, my husband came in the other night and said to me, I want a divorce. He said to me, I'll give you the Cadillac. And I'll give you the mansion over on the north side. And I'll give you $1,700 a month alimony. I just want to get free of you. I don't love you anymore. In my office, she wept. And says, I don't want a Cadillac. And I don't want a mansion on the north side. And I don't want $1,700 a month. I want my husband to love me. And if he doesn't love me, I don't want anything else. I want him to love me. And I think God must look down sometimes. And say, I don't want all your frills and 
All the things you offer me, I want you to love me with all your heart. If you love me like you ought to love me, all the rest will take care of itself. Oh, for a love that Christ demands of us. A love that will make our love for father and mother and brothers and sisters and family and life and self and all else pale into insignificance and look like hate when compared with the love we have for Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm building and I'm battling. I've got to get people saved and get the church built. I've got issues that need to be stood for. I need some preachers and missionaries and evangelists and, and laymen who will stand for the faith. But he said, I can't use any old flimsy-wimsy, wishy-washy potato string back, bone rolls, water squirting something. He said, I know what I need in my building and battling. See, he said, you see, you don't build without counting the cost and you don't battle without checking your army when you're outnumbered two to one. I don't need quantity so bad as I need quality, he said. I know what I need, and I need a man who loves me supremely. Secondly, he said, I need a man who will take his cross and follow me. Verse 27, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We look at cross-bearing lightly. But when a man took up his cross in Roman days, he wasn't going out to rededicate his life. When a man took up a cross in Roman days... He wasn't going out to make another decision. When a man took up his cross in Roman days, he was going out to end his life. Dr. A.W. Tozer said, a crucified man looks in only one direction. One thing. Paul said, this one thing I do. Too many preachers, I fear, are involved in too many things. When God called me to preach, my heart's desire was to be a full-time preacher. I was raised in churches that was against paying the preacher. And in some cases, they ought not have been paid. There's like the fellow who went to get a haircut when haircuts was a quarter. The preacher got a haircut and the barber said, that's free. And he said, no, sir, it's not free. He said, well, I'll come hear you preach sometime. He said, I want you to know I don't have any two-bit sermons. He said, then I'll come hear you preach twice. <laughs> You'll get that tomorrow by freight, as Dr. Lakin would say. When a man took up his cross in Roman days, he wasn't going out to end his, he wasn't going out to rededicate his life, he was going out to end his life. That was the end of him. A crucified man looks in only one direction, one thing, one thing. My heart got so burdened to be a full-time pastor that I resigned my job at the post office when my church is paying me $75 a month, not a week, a month. Nobody called me a money preacher back then. My house notes was $95.20 a month. My wife said, where are you going to get the other $20.20 to pay the house note? And I said, I don't know. But there's a God in heaven I'll find out sooner or later. If he's the one that wrote Philippians 4.19, we'll, we'll find it out in a few weeks. And if he's not, I want to find the one that wrote Philippians 4.19 and start preaching for him. <laughs> and in a few weeks' time, I found out he wrote Philippians 4.19. I've gained about 40 pounds since then. My wife has gained. I'll wait till she's here and let her tell you that. A crucified man looks in only one direction. A crucified man holds on to nothing. He has nothing to cling to. The happiest day of my life, I've made a million mistakes. But I didn't make a mistake that day I walked into the Cater Post Office and handed in my resignation with my hand trembling and tears going down my cheeks and my mailman's uniform and said, I'm going to be a preacher full time or nothing. And Mr. Broach said, you'll starve to death. Those Scottsdale people can't keep you up. And I said, I'm not depending on the Scottsdale people. I'm depending on the Lord. 
He said, I'll hold your job open for you. And so far as I know, he's still holding it open. He died a good while back. I guess it's still open. That's been 1961. It's 1973. I have no intention of ever going back. I didn't make a mistake that day. When I turned loose of everything, security and everything, and swung out on faith and said, sink or swim, heaven or hell, hot or cold, in and out, popular or unpopular, here I go. And I turned loose of all of it. Too many folks are like the little boy. He had his hand in a jar and his hand wouldn't come out. And finally his mother, mother had to break the expensive vase to get the little fellow's hand out. And when she got it out, she found his fist was closed. And he said, Billy, did you have your fist closed all the while? He said, yes, ma'am. But Billy, why didn't you open your fist? He said, if I'd opened my fist, I'd have dropped my penny. And he had a little brown penny in his hand. And there's a lot of businessmen holding to a little brown penny. A lot of college students holding to a little brown penny, afraid to attempt great things for God. The greatest experience of my life has been living out of God's hands to the mind. little boy walked into a market one day and was eyeing some cherries. And the groceryman said, go ahead, Bobby, and get you a handful of cherries. And he was sort of timid. He said, mm, mm, mm. And the groceryman said, go ahead and get you a handful of cherries. He said, mm. And he looked at his mother and said, Mrs. Smith, you mind Bobby having a handful of cherries? And she said, no. He said, see, Bobby, your mother doesn't care. Get you a handful of cherries. He said, mm. And finally, the grossman reached over and got a big handful of cherries and pulled his pocket open and crammed them in. Said, there, Bobby, you can have them. They're yours. They got outside and started down the street. And his mother said, Bobby, why didn't you accept the cherries? I told you it'd be all right. And he looked up and said, his hand's bigger than mine. <laughs> and I've learned his hand's bigger than mine. Only thing I got out of mine was a 60 Renault Dolphin. Last year out of his, I got a new Electra Deuce and a Quarter. That's two twenty-five. <laughs> a crucified man looks in only one direction. A crucified man holds on to nothing. And then, too, a crucified man has no further plans of his own. A man doesn't go out to be crucified and say, Dr. Faulkner, I'm going out here to be crucified and I'll be back at five o'clock. After my crucifixion, you and I will have supper together. No, a crucified man makes no plans beyond the cross. When I knelt on a concrete floor at the dead end of Decatur Street in Scottsdale, Georgia, and said, Lord, I'm yours. From the crown of my head to the sole of my feet, if you can get anything out of me, get it out of me. I prayed the prayer of A.J. Gordon, be thorough with me, Jesus, be thorough with me. Use me to the maximum, swing me as hard as you can. And Dr. Joe Henry Hankins, God bless him. Said God can hit an awful hard lick with a crooked stick. And he can. I only finished high school. If I hadn't told you, wouldn't have known it. You'd have thought I was a PhD, wouldn't you? <laughs> I'm really a doctor. I got two doctor's degrees. That makes me an official paradox. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, I'm not even a practical nurse. But I said, you can have me, Lord. And I gave it to him, all of it. You can have me. You'll get the glory. And if it fails, I'm going to tell him you and I in business together. And you can get credit for that, too. I said, strange what God will do if you put him in the same boat with you. Strange. Crucified man holds on to nothing. A crucified man has no further plans of his own. You need to get to the place where you say, I'm through planning. You can have it lock, stock, and barrel from here on in. It's all yours. One more thing about a crucified man. He's not coming back. 
Some preachers in America I don't worry about. I just got so much confidence in them and their dedication, I think they reached a point where they're not coming back. But there's some people I worry about. Because I know when the pressure comes from Satan that a lot of folks are going to throw in the white tower. But some are not coming back. I'd like to get to that place where I wasn't coming back. I tell this story. Paul Rader, I never met him. But I read this story about Paul Rader. He said that Paul Rader was a strong, robust man. He had a song leader by the name of Merle Dunlop. He said that Paul Rader got sick. Before he died, he'd lost weight until he was just a skeleton. A hundred pounds or less, according to the story I read. And he said that Paul Rader was in his room. Merle came in to see him one day just before he died. And Merle saw the perishing body of Paul Rader and he began to weep. And Paul Rader looked up and said, Merle, who's doing the dying around here? I'm not dying. I died 27 years ago. Merle went out. Paul Rader fell asleep and woke up and Mrs. Rader was standing by the bed. He inquired of Mrs. Rader, did Merle cry anymore? She said, yes. And Paul said to Mrs. Rader, tell Merle, I'm, 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 I'm not dying, 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 dying. And she said, died 27 years ago, and he said, and laid his head on the pillar and died. I heard Dr. Lee Robinson tell this story. Someone once asked George Mueller, what's the secret of his great life? And George Mueller said, there was a day when George Mueller died. And the greatest thing that happened to you is to take up your cross and die and leave here. There'll be no more of you. Jesus counts the cost. There's one other thing I won't cover. You can study it for yourself. It's verse 33. Whosoever does not forsake all that he has... He cannot be my disciple. And the word forsake all that you have literally means surrender claim to everything you've got. It's not your car anymore. It's God's car. It's not your money anymore. It's God's money. It's not your church anymore. It's God's church. It's not your work anymore. It's God's work. Surrender claim to all that he has. God is building and battling. And he needs something beside a bunch of pussyfooting, rose water squirting, shallow, Sunday morning glory Christians. He needs some dedicated, consecrated builders and battlers. And I call him to be one of them. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, PreachTheBible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit knvbc.com for Christian music you can trust.